hello everyone and welcome to this month's podcast of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine. With you is Danya Koja and Wendy Chang and we'll be discussing the April 2019 issue of Critical Decisions. If you are not familiar with a Critical Decisions publication, it is ASAP's official CME publication and it's filled with great pearls and it's very helpful to learn about the, both the bread butter in emergency medicine and topics that are a little more cutting edge. It covers two critical decisions articles that have three to five critical decisions each, in addition to many other features. Like the LLSA review, and you can even get CME from this publication. So for our first lesson of this issue, we're going to be talking about waterlogged, or angioedema. And with us today, we actually have both authors of this lesson. So welcome to Dr. Michelle Callahan and Dr. Daniel Gingold. Hello, thank you for having us. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. So let's talk about the disease, angioedema. Okay, so the first thing to understand is that angioedema is a sign of many potential diseases with a bunch of different etiologies, which we'll get into. So as we know, angioedema is a swelling uh, or edema of the deep dermis and sub tissues due to increased vascular permeability. And it's usually asymmetrical, non-pitting edema, and it often occurs in the face, lips, tongue, or extremities. And that same intervascular permeability can happen in the intestines and the gut, which causes some swelling and edema of the gut, which can cause some GI symptoms also, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Okay. Dan, you mentioned that there are many diseases that can cause these symptoms. Are there any ways to kind of categorize them? So angioedema can be broadly classified into two main types, either histamine-mediated, so involving mast cells, and bradykinin-mediated. So histamine-mediated is more frequently associated with an identifiable allergic trigger. More often, these patients will have urticaria. It tends to be more rapid in onset and more amenable to treatment with our typical medications that we give when we think about allergic reactions, so epinephrine, antihistamines, and corticosteroids. With regards to bradykinin-mediated angioedema, these often are patients who have either hereditary angioedema or angioedema in the setting of ACE inhibitor use. More often, this is going to present with a more gradual onset, a longer period of symptoms. They often will not uh, have the urticarial rash. So a person comes in with signs of angioedema. What do you do? So first things first, in emergency medicine, always ABCs. And here we really want to do an immediate assessment of airway compromise, since obviously that's the most feared complication of angioedema from any cause. So that means that we're going to be looking for signs of respiratory distress, which emergency physicians recognize well, and in particular pay attention to the location and severity of the swelling. So look at the swelling of the lips, tongue, soft palate, and posterior pharynx if that's possible. Paying particular attention to if there's signs of impending airway compromise due to laryngeal edema, like strider, hoarseness, other voice changes, or drooling. And if those things are present, we need to move very quickly towards securing the airway. The next thing to do would just obviously take some vital signs as hypotension might be a cue to go down anaphylaxis pathway. Then we'll be taking a history and more general exam if we don't identify any immediate life threats. And this is where we're going to try to determine uh, what the potential causes are, whether the patient exposed any potential allergens, do they have a family or personal history of similar attacks, um, or what medications are they taking, and what was the timing of the onset, because that might help us point to a histamine versus bradykinin immediate pathway that could change our management. Also looking at the skin exam um, is important because histamine-mediated angioedema is often, but not necessarily always, but often associated with itchy urticaria or wheels, 
where skin findings and bradykinia-mediated angioedema are rare, and if they do occur, are often firm but non-itchy lesions. Okay. Are there any other signs we need to watch out for? The presence of hypotension should definitely make you concerned, and you should consider uh, whether treatment needs to be given for anaphylaxis. And the medications that we would typically give for that are epinephrine, antihistamines, and our corticosteroids. In bradykinin-mediated angioedema, they may not necessarily respond as well to these medications, but they can still become hypovolemic and even go into hypovolemic shock from fluid shifts that are associated with the angioedema. Patients can also present with abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting in association with their angioedema. But if you see a patient that has a tense, almost surgical abdomen with guarding or significant tenderness, that is more typical of a bradykinin-mediated response, and that's often in the setting of bowel wall edema. Got it. So impending airway compromise, look at the skin to look for rashes, think of a hypotension, abdominal distension as well. Let's say you have someone and you're worried about angioedema. Do you have to scope all of them and admit them to the ICU? Because, Dan, as you know, you and I work at a community hospital where we don't have ENT, mm-hmm. and this plan is not going to work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do think that nasopharyngeal fiber optic examination is and should be in the skill set of emergency physicians, but certainly you're right, at a small hospital, you know, you might not have a scope or that can be sort of a time-intensive procedure. We want to catch everyone, but we don't want to necessarily be doing scopes unnecessarily if resources are limited. So I don't think that we need to be scoping everyone. We probably should scope most, except for the most mild causes. But if someone has some isolated lip and facial swelling with no tongue involvement or further posterior, those patients can probably be safely observed in the emergency department. Now, if you do see some swelling of the tongue or the soft palate or certainly of the floor of the mouth or especially the posterior tongue, or there are any of those more dangerous signs of laryngeal edema, like drooling, pain with swallowing, hoarseness, voice changes, stridor, all of these patients are going to need laryngeal exam, preferably with a fiber optic scope. All right, but who needs to be intubated? So if you don't have fiber optic capabilities, there are some clues that you can take away from the physical exam, which Dan has already mentioned. But a patient that has strider, is drooling, has a lot of uh, hoarseness of their voice or reports that they're having a lot of changes in their voice, those are findings that are suggestive of laryngeal edema. When your suspicion is high, you should always consider intubation or at least consider having the patient admitted to the intensive care unit for airway monitoring with the caveat that there are airway supplies at the bedside in the event that they have sort of an impending airway uh, collapse. Rapid airway management should also be considered in patients who have significant edema of the floor of their mouth or their tongue. Uh, While this patient should always be continuously monitored, we shouldn't be lulled into a false sense of security with normal pulse oximetry because a normal oxygen saturation does not eliminate the need for aggressive airway management in these patients. Oxygen saturation is actually a late marker of airway obstruction, and signs of impending airway collapse may not occur until the patient is already in significant distress. So is there anything specific to consider during intubation? There are a few things. I mean, we're mostly going to be using our general airway skills, but there are a few things in anaphylaxis to consider. The biggest one is timing, I think. And in general, if this person needs an airway, it's better to do it sooner rather than later because the angioedema that's accelerating will tend to get worse. And especially additional manipulation of the airway can also trigger more swelling. So we really want to maximize our first pass success and minimize the amount of manipulation of the airway. So we're going to do a lot of things we normally do, good pre-oxygenation and positioning, and have clear backup plans. Awake or ketamine-facilitated 
nasal or oral trachea intubation should definitely be considered if that's a capability of the provider or the institution. It's nice to do some uh, nebulized lidocaine to help with the gag reflex. If you need to take the patient to the operating room and have that be done in a more controlled setting with surgeons and consultants available, that should be considered. Although awake intubation or ketamine-facilitated fiber optic intubation certainly in the skill set of emergency physicians, and we should try to do that. Paralysis can cause collapse of the soft tissue, so that is a reason to, if we can do it without using a paralytic, that would be nice. Um, video laryngoscopy also can improve first pass success, uh, especially with the experienced providers. Just because we would prefer to not use paralytics doesn't mean we can't RSI. If we have a little bit of time, we certainly can use paralytic to improve our first pass attempt. Um, and I think some people feel nervous about paralyzing this patient because they want to sort of be rescued in the case of a failed intubation. But I think it's important to recognize, especially with airway obstruction, surgical airway is the backup plan. And actually, we should be going into this situation with a plan to perform a surgical airway if our initial attempt fails. And this is because, you know, this patient needs an airway period, you know, them waking up after sucks is not going to save you, then getting Sigamidex is not going to save you, so, and a supraglottic device is not going to be effective since the obstruction is actually at the glottic opening. So if our intubation attempt fails, we need to be kind of mentally and physically prepared to move immediately to surgical airway. So I think that means having obviously all the equipment in the room, but also maybe vocalizing to the team, I'm going to try awake intubation, then I'm going to try video endotracheal intubation. If that doesn't work, we're going to move to surgical airway, just so that everyone has sort of a shared mental model of what's going to happen and that no one feels surprised. I think people often say that the hardest part about a crike is making the decision to do it. So make the decision beforehand and that if this thing fails, then we're going to move on to surgical airway. That makes it feel much less like a failure because it's not real failure. If you do a cricothoreotomy and the person survives, that's totally when you save their life. High fives. All right. So in terms of other treatment for angioedema, I get that when patients present, they look like anaphylaxis. We certainly will treat them like anaphylaxis. But what about specifically for bradykinin-mediated angioedema? Do we use epi? Is there anything we can use? So in critically ill patients with an unknown cause, treatment with epinephrine is reasonable, um, as it can benefit the swelling if it's a histamine-mediated uh, angioedema. Patients who are showing signs of anaphylaxis should be managed as such with epinephrine, antihistamines, and steroids. There is no evidence currently that supports giving epinephrine in patients with suspected bradykinin-mediated angioedema. If that is what you suspect, such as a patient who has an ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema or reports a family history or a personal history of hereditary angioedema, the use of epinephrine is actually not routinely recommended because it's felt that the risk profile outweighs the benefits in those patients. The literature also offers little data to support the use of antihistamines or steroids in these patients, but these medications have pretty low side effect profiles, and I think it's reasonable to use these agents even in a bradykinin-mediated uh, edema. Historically, fresh frozen plasma has also been reported to have some effectiveness for these cases, but the quality of evidence is not great. There are more targeted pharmacologic treatments that are being developed for hereditary angioedema and ACE inhibitor-related angioedema, such as acalantide, acadabant, and the C1 esterase inhibitor concentrates like Baroner and Sinrise. Acalantide is a plasma calocrine inhibitor, and it's used particularly for hereditary angioedema. 
Acadabant is a bradykinin receptor antagonist, so it will reverse the effects of bradykinin. That's classically been used for hereditary angioedema, although it's also being studied for use in ACE inhibitor-related angioedema. The C1 esterase inhibitor concentrates. There are two currently developed. The first, Baronert, is useful for acute attacks of angioedema, and the second, Synrise, is more for prophylaxis against angioedema attacks. So really, in an acute phase, um, there's only one of those inhibitor uh, concentrates that you're going to be reaching for. Sounds great. But let's say you have a patient who comes in, they come in with their angioedema, they did not need to be intubated, you gave them medications, and they're better. How long do we need to watch them? So evidence is really pretty limited on this question, so we don't really know. But common practice would be for mild angioedema, you know, just face and lip swelling, can probably be observed in the ED from about four to six hours since the maximal peak of their swelling. And if they're still doing well and getting better, they can probably go home. And we think that's probably safe. Uh, a little bit of mild anterior tongue swelling may be able to be observed in the emergency department, but anything more posterior to that should probably be hospitalized for prolonged observation on the floor or even in the ICU. And all patients with suspicion for laryngeal swelling with those signs of laryngeal edema that we talked about should certainly be admitted to the ICU for airway monitoring. All right, that was a great review. Definitely check out figure two since that has a great outline of how to approach an undifferentiated angioedema. Uh, Certainly beyond paying attention to your ABCs, don't forget to do a skin exam to look for urticaria to help you differentiate whether this histamine-mediated angioedema. Any other take-home points, you guys? Yeah, and just to add to the skin findings, then, of course, the next thing is taking a good history about suspected allergens, personal or family history of similar attacks, or medications that might be associated with it that can also help you differentiate. And also, if we are going to observe the patient in the emergency department and send them home, we need to have good follow-up instructions with someone who we're suspecting histamine-mediated angioedema. We might want to prescribe uh, glucocorticoids, but we certainly want to be prescribing an EpiPen with return precautions and to avoid a suspected allergen. If they were bradykinin or perhaps ACE-mediated, we want to remind them to avoid NACE and at least until they follow up their primary care physician or uh, hopefully an allergist. And definitely be prepared for a rapidly progressive airway obstruction. It should always be the most experienced intubator with multiple backups and with a setup for a surgical airway if needed. Thank you both so much for taking us through the article and also for actually writing it. Um, Angioedema scares a lot of people. I know it scares me and definitely the differentiation of histamine and bradykinin and figuring out the difference and how to approach that is a very helpful topic. So thank you both for taking the time to do this and to be here with us on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Well, Wendy, that was a pretty great discussion. I know that this is your favorite part where the LLSA review but I really related to this article, which talks about fire-related inhalation injury. And I actually had a patient a few months ago that presented to the emergency department of the chief complaint of I have a sore on my nose. And what had happened was actually the patient um, had a crack pipe explode near his face and causing an inhalation injury. However, obviously the patient was not able to verbalize this inhalation injury and came in with a sore on his nose from the burn. Patient was waiting because there was a lack of recognition of the emergency of the case because he was fine, his error was fine, and the inhalation injury was missed for a while until when he was seen, he was noted to have a hoarseness of his voice and all of these changes, needed to be intubated, his vocal cords were swollen, it was a mess. Wow. 
So I guess we have to add, in addition to fires, like house fires, you have to worry about crack pipe exploding. That is correct, yes. And that is now part of my differential for um, nose sores. But the big take-home point from that is that inhalation injury patients are going to come in looking fine. And then an hour or two later is when they're going to start to have their symptoms. Absolutely. So a high index of suspicion. Absolutely. And then you also have to think about if they might be at risk for carbon monoxide or cyanide poisoning. Absolutely. So if you, if you don't see a lot of fire-related injuries at your shop, this article or the LSA review of it is definitely worth your time. Great. For our critical procedure this month, it's actually about umbilical vein catheterization. I read this article in great detail because <laughs> it's been a while. Or as our locals say, a minute. Yep, it's been a long minute. <laughs> so this is something that you do not just for little kids, but super little kids. So neonates before their umbilicus falls off. So you have like a good, what, seven to ten days when they're after they're born. And I think the biggest take-home pearl from this article is remember that it is an option in your sick neonate. Not all of us are comfortable with small babies. Yeah, there's, there's the look of fear on Wendy's face again. And that's definitely something to remember since we don't do this in adults, ever. Please don't do this in adults. No, hopefully not. <laughs> and our second lesson in this issue is chest protection or chest pain observation. So thank you for Drs. Edgar Ordonez and Dr. Stephen Boone for writing this article. So this is a very important topic, and we've talked about this in other issues before in various forms. I think there was an LSA review article about managing low-risk chest pain. We've also talked about observation for chest pain. But I think that we cannot talk enough about chest pain because everyone has chest pain. So what is your one-liner, Wendy? Well, this article really focuses on how to do chest pain observations. So it really comes down to picking the right patient. And that comes to risk stratifying chest pain, which is, again, we do this every day on every shift. How do we find the low to intermediate risk patients that we can then observe and send home safely? So who are the people that we cannot do this for? Obviously, if somebody has a STEMI, <laughs> that's <laughs> All right, easy. Let, hold on, hold on. Let me write that down. Okay. So high risk features, that goes a lot into, of course, our history taking, patients' risk factors, etc. If there's a concerning EKG, if they have a positive troponin, if they're unstable, or even if they have pulmonary edema. Okay. So those are not the people we're talking about. For the rest of the patients, how do we figure this out? How do we risk stratify them? Well, you pick your acronym du jour, <laughs> whether it's uh, the heart score, the Timmy score, or a few others that I learned from this article, the pursuit, grace, etc. The idea is that you use a risk stratification tool to find the right patient. Well, as you pointed out, Wendy, every once in a while we hear of an acronym du jour, but which one is better? Well, there's a great uh, table in this article, table two, that kind of talks about the pros and cons, as well as how these scores were derived. And I think it really comes down to both the EDACS and the heart score, because those two were actually developed for ED patients to find the low-risk patients that can be discharged home. Okay. So once we have used the acronym that we like to use a risk stratification tool that we're comfortable with, 
how do we decide how many troponins do these patients get? Well, the recent studies suggest maybe you can do troponins every two or three hours to rule somebody out, like a rapid rule out. But, you know, as many of our practices are still dictated by, or at least restrained by, what's in the society and recommendations, the AHA and the um, American Cardiology Group all recommend getting troponins every three to six hours. Okay. So if they come in, we get a presentation and then we repeat it at least once. And then it's also helpful if we have it at three to six hours after the symptom onset as well. And that way with the curve of the troponin, hopefully we'll be able to have had it peaked by then. Yep, exactly. So we talked about risk gratification, troponins. How about provocative testing? Does everyone need provocative testing? Well, this is interesting because I guess that's always the teaching I had when we were in training. Uh, but no, actually, even though the um, society guideline says people should get provocative testing because obviously you're trying to escalate your evaluation of these patients, there's really poor evidence and there's concern that if everybody with chest pain with these negative rule-outs get provocative testing, then there's a lot of over-testing. So what's the problem with that? They can get more invasive procedures like caths. It really doesn't improve, you know, any outcomes. All right. So when we're saying provocative testing and advanced testing and all of these things, like what does that mean? Because in the OBS world, if you're running your own OBS unit in the emergency department, which I know a lot of people out there do, you are the person ordering these tests. So can you take us through a run-through of what that is? Because all I know is stress tests. <laughs> that's right. There are a lot of choices for this. And again, in the article, if you look at Table 3, that's a good rundown, again, of pros and cons of them. You have a variety of choices. You can do the old-school exercise treadmills where they look at your EKG changes during this. You can get um, perfusion testing, oftentimes nuclear perfusion testing. You can get stress echoes. You can also do you know, cardiac CTAs. That's kind of the newcomer in the more recent years. And also even cardiac MRIs. I think it really comes down to your institution, what's available, what all the services involved are familiar and comfortable with, because you have to be able to interpret them, of course. Uh, and also, you know, your patient, because some of our patients really can't get up to, you know, 10 mets on the exercise treadmill. So there's no way you can do that test on them. Got it. So see and learn about what is um, available at your institution to know how to use it. And there are some patient-related factors that limit the usage of certain tests. That's right. All right. So when do you just give up and admit? <laughs> Anytime. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, if they have positive testing, whether it's troponins or their stress tests or whatever advanced imaging or um, testing you got. Some op centers I learned that get automatic routine cardiology consults on all the patients that are being ops. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I would have thought it was a bad thing because you would think some people are really, again, in the intermediate risk and you could dispose them pretty easily. But the article says that they can actually decrease utilization of your testing. So maybe that's a good thing. Okay. Well, definitely something to think of. So we talked about the fact that with a lot of chest pain patients, it's important for us to be familiar with at least one risk stratification tool to risk stratify our chest pain patients at low risk or intermediate risk of ACS. 
And then once we risk stratify them, we get troponins, we can repeat them at two hours, we can repeat them also at three to six hours after symptom onset. And provocative testing is not necessary for everyone. And there's a lot of kinds for advanced testing, exercise, treadmill, perfusion, stress, echo, cardiac, CTA. And your choice depends on what you have at your shop and what your patient's physically able to do. Great. Well, speaking of cardiology, the critical EKG this month is pretty cool. It's a person with ST depressions in the anterior leads. And the pearl in this article is that you need to think of not only anterior ischemia, but posterior STEMI. And the morphology is different because it's a lot more straight with a posterior STEMI than it is with, the, of course, the morphology that you think of with a posterior MI. So definitely worth taking a look at. Yep. The critical image this month just adds to my list of things that I would not do. I don't climb onto roofs. I don't now... Clean garages after that whole, like, um, oh, yeah. recluse. Yep. Brown after recluse, the spider. spiders. Yeah, and now I'm not going to do yoga. Wait, what, why are you not going to do yoga, Wendy? Because this patient had abdominal pain after doing yoga, and she had a life-threatening disease. So no yoga for you? No yoga for me. Okay. All right. And if you want to find out what this life-threatening diagnosis is, you definitely want to check out the critical decisions, critical image for this month. It is pretty interesting. For the drug box, there's pergabalin and gabapentin, which we are now using a little more often for pain. They do have the side effect of dizziness and feeling loopy and crazy. So not necessarily what you want to give people before they want to drive but something to add to our box, especially now that we are decreasing the use of opioid for pain, thankfully. That's right. I also learned that, you know, adequate dosing or effect is really after a two-month trial. So when, if, if your patient is not having adverse effects and they're saying it's not adequately controlled, then maybe have them try it for longer. Sounds like a plan. And then finally, last but not least, the tox box. And for this one, it is nitrous oxide abuse, which is what? Laughing gas, right? Right. Yeah. So if you are abusing laughing gas, what happens? You're quite happy because you're <laughs> laughing. <laughs> well, I mean, it does say that. So it says in the side effects that it's euphoria. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like a side effect, acutely. <laughs> like, that kind of sounds like the effect. Correct. <laughs> But what about chronically? They have a lot of neurological symptoms. Come, Wendy, come on. You found that in the last sentence of the article. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the list goes on, so you guys should check it out too. So neurological symptoms, consider that in a patient who is chronically abusing nitrous oxide. Maybe they live near a dental office. <laughs> Definitely a thought. Well, thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to our podcast this month. We have enjoyed recording this. I hope you have enjoyed listening to us as well. Please share your thoughts with us. Uh, my Twitter account is at Danya Koja. Mine is at EM underscore NCC. And we hope to hear from you soon. And until then, bye-bye.